New Zealand's a country that has the ability to really make a difference. Our thinking and our way of being and our values as a country, who we are and what we stand for, particularly coming from our Māori culture, is a very valuable part of you know, the solution for the future. Purpose Tea Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with David Downs, CEO of the New Zealand Story Group, a government agency set up to enhance New Zealand's reputation internationally beyond its clean, green image. David is also a comedian, a writer, he's a talented speaker, he chairs boards, he's on committees, the man does not stop. But David was also a cancer survivor. David was given a year to live and he survived against all odds. Really amazing episode. Thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with him. Don't forget to hit subscribe, share with friends and colleagues. Enjoy the episode. David Downs, welcome to Purposely Podcast. Oh, kia ora. Thank you for having me. Yeah, kia ora. You're the CEO of the New Zealand Story Group. What's their mission? So the New Zealand Story is our role is to showcase the totality of New Zealand to the world, if you like. So the world knows a lot about us as a brand, as a country. But they know only really about our tourism sort of idea, you know, that we're a beautiful place to visit, that we're nice, welcoming people. They don't necessarily know, the rest of the world, that we have incredible science and innovation and technology and history and culture. And so what we're trying to do is make sure that the world knows uh, more about us uh, and grow that brand and reputation of New Zealand. So beyond nature and beyond our kind of clean, green image globally, what what was the thinking behind forming the story group and and kind of was it a reaction to something in particular um it's sort of a potentially about a missed opportunity and that new zealand's global brand you know the perceptions of new zealand globally are very positive you know and we do lots of research we can tell you pretty empirically that the brand of new zealand is very strong people love us people admire us as a country and yet don't actually know that much about us and so the clean green 100 percent pure new zealand has been a wonderful brand kind of builder for new zealand but it's an incomplete message it doesn't really talk about our science, our innovation, our cities, our, you know, it's sort of the diversity of what we have as a country. And so as New Zealand, if you, as we're trying to make our way in the world and, and, you know, let exporters talk about who they are on the global stage, then we need the rest of the world to understand that we are a dynamic, sophisticated, diversified, you know, and first world economy. And so, yeah, part of New Zealand Story Group, what we're doing is, is telling that story internationally through, you know, presses, press releases, media video content, social media content, that sort of thing, basically showcasing the, the more diverse parts of the New Zealand economy. Wonderful. And so it started a year ago or just over. Did you, did you get approached for this role? What were the sort of... No, no. Right. I started a year ago. I started, you know, the organization has been around about 10 years now and it's um, part of, it's a government organization. So we are we are funded by government. And we're, it's, I, I say to people, it's about a, a 20 to 30 year journey. You know, you don't build a brand overnight. You don't change the... The perceptions of a country overnight it's going to be it's going to take us many years so we're only you know 10 years into what's probably a 30-year journey but you know we're seeing some positive progress and being able to tell the stories of you know for example new zealand's the fourth most prolific space nation in the on the planet wow uh we have the ninth longest coastline of any country in the world we control nine percent of the global airspace we here's a cool one i found out yesterday new zealand grows 60 percent of the world's carrot seeds. Wow. You know, so it's full of these little kind of nuggets of information that we basically go out there and say, look, we're actually, the other thing about New Zealand is we talk about ourselves and we New Zealanders are guilty of it. 
as being a small country. And the reality is we're actually not a small country. We have a small population in a big country. The country of New Zealand physically is bigger than the UK and Ireland put together. It's about the same size as Japan. It's a significant territory. And that's part of our challenge, actually, is that we small population in a large country, and that country gives huge amounts of resources and benefits to us, but also you know, can, make, can um, mean that we need to think differently about how we care for the environment and, and look after the special country that we have. Yeah, it is a, a really stretched country, isn't it? Like, I remember traveling around a sort of post-university and, and just felt like I spent the whole time driving, but there was incredibly beautiful spots. What makes you proud to be a Kiwi? What makes you proud to be a New Zealander? Oh, look, I've always, I'm born and bred in New Zealand, although my parents are Irish. And I get the best of both worlds, this sort of international perspective that comes from having parents that are outside the country. But then having born, I was brought up in a place called Whanganui, which is a small town on the West Coast, and lived my whole life, you know, through understanding the culture of New Zealand and the kind of the values and the, that make us who we are today. Um, New Zealand is a country of kind of innovators and, and people who think differently you know, who challenge authority, comes from our history, really, of being a country that was uh, the last major landmass on the planet to be settled by humans, actually. Only just over a thousand years ago, the first settlers came to New Zealand, the, the Polynesians that became the Māori. And that's been our history ever since then, this idea that we are a pioneering country, a, you know, a country of explorers and adventurers and people who think differently. And you see that playing through you know, all the time in, in, around New Zealand at the moment, companies that have got global ambitions and impact coming from New Zealand. So, you know, I'm really proud of the, of the work that we see happening around us and of the country that, we, that we're, we're building, particularly at, at the moment as we're thinking about the kind of the changing economies and, and climate change and things like our indigenous culture, our Māori culture in New Zealand is such an asset for us, this sort of deep belief and understanding of, of the environment and, and man's impact on it. And, um, you know, we're just seeing this great, you know, realization that New Zealand can be a bit of a beacon in the world for how we think differently about you know, our role. Yeah, our uniqueness. Now, look, you've been a comedian. You are a marriage celebrant. You're probably still a comedian. Yeah. Um, you're a you're a coder. You're a, a leader. You've worked in government, out of government. You're lot. You've been lots of things and had a really successful career. What about your childhood growing up in Wanganui? What about that? would indicate that you would head in the direction you're going. Nice. Well, you did. So you just basically said I had a, you just basically called me someone with a short attention span. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I was lucky to have um, a very stable um, family life. On the, I was the youngest of three children for many years, and then my parents had another surprise child. So I ended up being the middle child. Um, and as I say, born in, born in Whanganui and brought up by two Irish immigrants to New Zealand who only recently came to New Zealand before I was born. So I've got this Irish spirit of storytelling and jokes and, you know, the crack, as we call it in Irish. Um, and I've lived in Ireland since then, so I sort of get it, my culture. Um, but then being born in, into um, Whanganui, which is a, a, a part of the country that has a very significant Māori population, so culture is really at the forefront there as well. And then I, I through my school years, just, you know, um, it, I went to a Catholic schools because my parents are Irish and that's what you do when you're Irish but you know lots of good things to do with morals and values and and at the same time explored yeah this side of my personality that was a bit of a performer I am a bit of a performer at times and I was lucky enough to sort of fall in with a group of friends who had similar sort of feelings and when I went to university uh, after school I went to Massey University and I 
you know, my almost in my first week of university, I realized that the university bit was pretty boring, but the, the extramural activities were fantastic. And so I um I got involved in doing, you know, shows and capping reviews, comedy reviews and stuff. Yeah. And then to my parents' dismay, I dropped out of university after only sort of 18 months um, to do other more interesting things like being an actor. Imagine telling that to your parents, you know. You know, I was going to be the first in my family to graduate. For the many thousands of years of history of both sides of my family had led to the point where I would be the first to graduate with a degree from a university. And my parents were so proud of the fact, you know, that I was there. And then all of a sudden I called them up my name and went, actually, I'm going to drop out of university and become a comedian. What do you reckon? Okay. What was their reaction? <laughs> but to their benefit, to their credit, they oh, they backed it. And, um, you know, of course, were pretty pleased to see me going off and doing interesting things. So, you know, it kept reminding me that maybe I should go back and finish my degree at some point, which I did 30 years later. <laughs> but, you know, it was, um, it was just a really interesting time, you know, in your, in your early 20s. And I say this to lots of people in, in your 19, 20, 21, 22, you know, there's plenty of room to make mistakes. There's plenty of time to do things that, feel like they're taking you in a completely different direction, but that's how you build up experience and resilience in life. Yeah. Um, not by always taking the safe road, you know, and I was so pleased I did it. Totally agree. And looking back at that Catholic school, because I, I too went to a Catholic school, did you ever, did you get caned and, or strapped? Do you remember getting? Yeah. This was the 70s, mate. I mean, they were ruthless in some ways. They thought they were doing, you know, their best. And when I say they, it wasn't just the male teachers, it was the nuns as well. They were at times pretty ruthless, but that was just the way they thought, you know, kids learned. I think we've all learned better since then. But I, you know, and now even I, I was a bit of a swat, you know, I was a nerdy um, kid and I was always, you know, sitting at the front of the class and learning. And But even I would, I had the strap a few times in the cane and stuff. And I think it was just the way it was in the 70s coming through that ethos. I'm, it's, I'm glad that it's not like that anymore. It was looking back at times pretty brutal and, and really misunderstood. Pretty brutal. I, I remember confessional being quite challenging. You're trying to come up with something that's plausible or believe, believe, <laughs> believable, um, but at the same time, you know, you don't want that curtain to pull aside and, the, and you get marched out to be caned. So I remember confessional being quite challenging. No. You know, and I, absolutely. I mean, God forbid you should actually say that you masturbate or whatever at the age of 14. So you'd make up something else like I was disrespectful to my parents or something. Yeah. Because that was sort of in the zone. You get your 10 Hail Marys and then and you're done. But I look back, I mean, I, I'm not a big believer in that kind of um, way of indoctrinating children into religion. But at the same time, I, you know, it was an incredible education in terms of morality and thinking differently and thinking about the world in a much more broad sense, perhaps. Yeah. So I, I am grateful for that education. And that wanting to please your parents. So when you made that phone call to them and said, I've got some news and you're not going to like it. Did you have a strong sense of wanting to please them and wanted your career to matter? Did you remember that being a factor? Um, no, I never felt that pressure from them. I'm really lucky. My parents have always appreciated all of us children. We've got four of us, as I say now, and, and we have a great relationship today, my, my siblings and my parents and I. So I never felt a pressure to be successful or make them proud or any of that sort of thing. I mean, they were very proud anyway. My, my parents both you know, pretty working class, and I say that in a, in a very positive way. Dad was a painter and decorator and worked every hour, every sunlight hour of the day to put food on the table. It wasn't looking back now. We weren't we weren't wealthy at all. I can't remember ever really having any holidays or things like that, but we weren't, we weren't deprived. You know, we had food on the table every night and that sort of thing, and we had the odd trip to the beach. So I'm very grateful for the work ethic that I learned from both my parents. 
and that connection through to the Irish culture for me is really important. Like it's, I learned a lot from that, even just through the, the lens of only two people in my life that were Irish. But yeah, that, that way of being and growing up is pretty idyllic when I look back now, even though, as I say, we didn't have much money. It, it, was, it was a very happy childhood. Yeah. And so career in tech or looking to the future and, and imagining yourself kind of part of the forefront of the development of the web and technology and stuff, was that, that sort of, um, and then with you as a performer, like marrying those two things together, but was that? clear excitement you remember having around technology yeah it's interesting i mean even when i was a kid at school i was mucking around with tech you know like this was the jeepers i was born in 1970 so well, i remember going to high school at um the age of 12 or whatever and and they had one computer in the school you know like we were a poor school catholic boys school they, they could afford one it was in a special room could go and visit it if you were if you were good and then you know a year or two later they bought a few more for a little bit of a laboratory and the te- teachers knew nothing about it like it was a foreign kind of object to them so a couple of us sort of taught ourselves you know from reading books and and looking at magazines and stuff and and i remember you know basically teaching the teachers what the hell this computer was all about and how it worked and then my parents and as i said they weren't wealthy but one of the amazing things they did you know for my birthday at whatever age it was 14 15 had obviously saved up for a lot of time to buy me a little one of those little tiny, you know, today, you know, or less compute power than a than a pocket calculator. But it was an amazing um, thing because I spent hours and hours and hours, you know, like for years, basically teaching myself about technology and becoming just fearless about how to use it. And then when I went to university and I actually studied mathematics when I went there first, mathematics and philosophy, because I thought that sounded very grand. But beautifully in the maths lab, they had proper computers that we could, you know, play with and learn with and and kind of spark that, um, you know, that that knowledge and experience, which later in life, after many years of being an actor and a writer, I decided I better get a proper job. I could fall back on those skills that I'd learned which was really good. And so you ended up 11 years with Microsoft, that's right, isn't it? And across Asia and also locally in New Zealand. Yeah. How'd you get that break? It's about the most unlikely, uh, most unlikely sort of um, career sort of trajectory from being literally a stand-up comedian, setting up a bar, <coughs> being a kind of writer on TV, and then all of a sudden working at Microsoft. <laughs> it came about, I mean, because of that, that knowledge and, and familiarity with tech, while I had been... Um, uh, mucking around in the stand-up comedy world I'd also set up a little tech company on the side with some mates and um, it was really good and that kind of led me to um, you know learning enough about how to run a business that I could be useful as well and then you know I went off to live in Ireland actually then for a while and over there I worked for a big sort of tech innovation company and then when I came back Microsoft came hunting and kind of um, offered me a job and yeah it was it was an amazing experience actually I was very lucky to um, to kind of get in with with that huge corporate and, and went on that journey for the, the corporate journey for about 10 or 11 years yeah demanding role um yeah i mean it's huge corporates will take everything out of you that you can ever give them that's the thing i, I learned i mean i learned so much it's like you know it, it, you it, suddenly you're opened up to these massive um projects opportunities the global perspective but at the same time yeah you're expected to deliver your sales numbers and you're expected to um you know be pretty switched on at all times so it wasn't necessarily easy, but boy, I wouldn't swap it for the world. I felt like I, you know, that was where I got my MBA. <laughs> it was almost in those sort of processes there. I mean, not not literally, but sort of thematically learned so much about business. And um, yes, first of all, in New Zealand, and then I went off and, and spent you know, a few years in Asia as well uh, with Microsoft. 
you know, running their business across Southeast Asia through the what they called the emerging markets, which was all the weird and wonderful and beautiful places where business does not behave the same way as it does in a country like New Zealand. It's very different. And that is very valuable for me, you know, to learn that business is not always as straightforward as it is here. And, you know, you're in a corporate environment, as you described, and, and but you're, you know, you're actually, you're, you've been a comedian, you've been a writer, you still, still those things. How do you sort of marry the, because, you know, being, being a comedian sounds fun, performing in front of people sounds fun, sitting in, in meetings or um, getting deep into re- solving some real tricky problems sounds quite serious. Like, how, how does David combine those two <laughs> things? Like, you're in a lot of meetings, David. Yeah, they are. Uh, <laughs> I do. I do have a lot of meetings now. I mean, it's funny, the skills you learn as a writer or an actor or a performer, and this is what, that's kind of go back to my point earlier about when you're in your early 20s, you can do anything. You're just accumulating skills and knowledge and experience. Like, it, just do anything that gets you diversity because later in life, you'll fall back on those skills. So I often now find myself, you know, falling back on the sorts of skills I learned when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20, or when I was in a committee, you know, being a stand-up comedian in my, in my mid twenties. So business, if anything, these days is crying out for creativity and for a different way of being. There's huge sort of um, movements around things like design thinking and how, um, uh, you know, innovation is, happens in business. And it really is the same sort of principles that you learn when you're, when you're working in the, in that comedy or the sort of the arts. So, you know, these things overlap much more than you'd actually think. And was there a sense that you, or did you burn out? Like, what was the, the sort of main reason behind you leaving Microsoft and, and moving on? Well, I'd just done my time. I'd been 10 years and big corporates, well, more than 10, about 13. Big corporates will always take more out of you than you, than you can potentially give. It's a, it's, a, it's a give, give, give. You know, you get a lot for it too. I mean, you're well, you know, well looked after. But I, and I'd been on the leadership programs. I'd done all these sort of incredible leadership experiences in Seattle and around the world and, felt very blessed and I felt like it was time you know and we were living in Singapore at the time and we'd been up there with the boy with our kids I've got three three boys and we decided it was time to get them back to New Zealand so that they could be teenagers in New Zealand instead of teenagers in Asia which is a very different experience and that was the time I said well now's the time for me to just you know discover what is my purpose you know what do I want to really achieve I learned so much through all the things I've done so far it's time for me to kind of fulfill my destiny Luke um and I and, and that meant me thinking about what I, what was I really enjoying? What did I love? What could I offer the world? And um and that yeah that led me through pretty quickly through to the well, the things I really enjoyed were helping companies grow, <clears throat> making a difference for other people, um, helping interna- internationally navigate the kind of international landscape that I'd learned. Yeah, so I came back to New Zealand and and I actually approached New Zealand Trade and Enterprise NZTE who's the government's kind of business development part of government, helping companies grow internationally, and ended up working for them for, gosh, another 10 years or more. So it's it's been a wonderful, wonderful sort of switch. Yeah. And you, you've not been too far from government at any one time, have you, in, in recent years? Would that be fair to say? And how do you find working with and around government? Like, it fits in with that purpose, drive? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thing about, so I worked for the government institution. When I started, I rather arrogantly said to my boss, um, oh, I think I'll only do like two years because I don't want to turn into one of those government people. And here I am, you know, 10 plus years later, and I probably have turned into one of those <laughs> government people. Yeah. But what I've discovered is that working for government is just a wonderful obli- um, you know, privilege. We are in the public service and you, you certainly feel that you are in service. And I know some people will laugh at that. But the reality is, 
you know, you take a massive pay cut <laughs> to come and work for the government usually, and you do it because you see a bigger purpose in life and a bigger reason to be, you know, to be around. And I love the fact that you can have a system-wide impact and a pretty significant impact for others, you know, helping others in a way that corporates don't always let you do. And, you know, we're here for a really big purpose to grow the, the country, you know, to grow New Zealand for, for the good of everybody that, that lives here, not just for the businesses to get them more money, but because a wealthy and prosperous New Zealand will mean we have the money to do the things we need to do, buy, buy cancer drugs or uh, build schools and that sort of thing. So I've often said to my boss who hired me into NZTE, I said, damn you, you know, once, once I've worked for an organisation where purpose is at the core, you'll kind of never work anywhere else. Yeah. Like it would, you wouldn't go back to just a pure corporate, you know, working for money um, type role because it, it would be hollow. So I think, yeah, government just affords you that opportunity of, of making real difference. Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing you didn't plan was cancer came knocking in 2017. You were diagnosed with cancer of the lymphatic system. Is that right? You, you'd experienced some symptoms and you got a, and you got um you went to see a doctor. Yeah. So basically, yeah, as you say, it's not planned. I was just almost sort of literally on my way to work one day. At that point, I was sort of the um sort of chief operating officer of the of the organisation I was in, and in a big busy role, lots of people and and staff and obligations and stuff. But was feeling a bit under the weather <clears throat> and went to the doctor and yeah was diagnosed with um, ultimately with a thing called lymphoma, which is a blood cancer, and it, and it was pretty far advanced by the time they caught it. It was a pretty big tumor. So yeah, that was I often describe that as being my you know my my fourth career you know because I had stand up comedy as a career and then running my own tech startup businesses and then working for Microsoft and then into TH fifth career and then I went in, and cancer became a, basically almost like literally a job for for a couple of years, you know, it was a pretty significant thing. I had to drop out of work immediately. I couldn't go back to the office. I had to go to the hospital pretty much straight away. And that was two years then of battling and, you know, going through cancer treatment. First of all, in New Zealand, it goes through the standard chemotherapy treatments and that sort of thing, many, many rounds of treatments over about a year. Ultimately, to be told that it wasn't successful, I had run out of options here. So it was a really, yeah, unplanned, traumatic life, you know, life-changing experience and we we met for a, a coffee before this interview and i i asked you about what was the impact on your kind of mental health and like how you were like staring if you know were you staring into the abyss what was the impact on you and you you said you took it on the chin pretty well like you were pretty positive about it which is rare right i, I imagine not everyone reacts like that what why why do you think you reacted like that when you look at your core self like take it so positively there were definitely moments where I was pretty, you know, upset and, you know, <clears throat> um, sad and those sorts of things. But on the whole, on the whole, I had I had this belief that I would be able to get through the cancer. You know, when I first got diagnosed, they had said, it, you know, this is, we know how to treat this. This is a lymphoma is pretty standard. Unfortunately, you know, a few weeks later, they went, oh, actually, you've got a particular type of lymphoma and a particular type of genetic makeup. That means what the things we were going to do are probably not going to work. So we're going to have to try something completely different. And then, you know, after a few months of that, it was like, oh, actually, these treatments haven't worked and we're, and we're going to have to try some different ones. And so I had all these sort of setbacks, but I had remained, and thanks to my family, I had to say, and friends, you know, very positive about the outcome. You know, almost unreasonably optimistic at times. It's kind of in my nature. Maybe it's the Irish in me. I often reflect on, you know, my childhood and kind of the, the lessons of, you know, countries like the Irish have, have had pretty tough times, but they always come through with, resilience and a smile yeah and i've got that definitely got that in in my nature 
but yeah, when I ultimately got to the point here in New Zealand where they said that I was terminal and you know I had less than a year to live, it was a, a pretty that was a pretty you know confronting message to receive. But at the same time, for me and you know quite clearly, spoiler alert, I lived. Yeah. Um, because now I um I found that I you know the world opened up and you know luckily for me all these sort of parts of my life come together. You know I'd spent my life basically navigating international landscapes first for NZTE uh, first for Microsoft and NZTE and understanding how the world kind of works and I managed to find connections and connect with people who got me onto a clinical trial for a new type of cancer treatment in the US so I headed up ended up heading up to the US and I'm making a long story very short here but um you know through through all of that I had to have this sort of resilience and as I say that wasn't just me that was my family my friends and, and people who supported me so it was a really amazing experience to go through. And you were very um, public about your journey as well, weren't you? So you, you did a blog, I think you a regular column for a, a, a newspaper, was it? And you did 60-odd posts on that, like just telling people how the how the journey was playing out. Like how what role did that have in your uh, kind of fight against cancer? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, I, I having been a writer for much of my life, and I've written lots of books and stuff too, and a kind of creator and and a restless energy, I think, too. When I was told you have to drop out of work, you can't do anything, you know, go sit in a hospital room for the next few months, I went, oh, God, I can't do that. I've got to do something. So I started writing a column, and I, and I sent it off to Stuff, which is an online newspaper, and they published this column, and every week I would write an article about the experience of going through cancer and what it was like from a patient's point of view. And because and I was a, you know, ex-comedian, um, lots of the funny stuff that happens, you know, because there's so many weirdness things that happen when you go through a life-changing event and that became a very well-read part of, of stuff and lots of you know tens of thousands of people reading it every week and sending me messages and that sort of thing and that was ultimately what saved my life because through that it was being read by people around the world and through that I connected with the people that ultimately um, got me on this clinical trial so it was an amazing experience and I kept writing it you know through good times and bad with whatever the news was I would kind of relay my experiences and luckily for me I did it's turned into so much later in life as as I got through it that all those columns are now a book I've created a book I do a lot of public speaking around my journey but also what that means from the point of view of resilience and mindsets and and that sort of thing and um yeah I wouldn't want to do it again and I and um, I wouldn't want anyone else to have to do it but boy it was a a life-changing event and that people talk about cancer being life changing, and you know, no doubt, absolutely, no doubt, it is. But in terms of like, I'm just thinking, look at your life, and you're on a number of boards, and you spend a lot of time, you know, commuting for work and and out about. And where does where does cancer sort of say to you? Actually, I'm going to be completely hedonistic, and I'm just going to do complete pleasure, or actually, I'm going to make my life um, <laughs> really purposeful, and I'm going to make a huge impact because you. Like you've gone, you've sort of doubled down. Like you're on a number of boards, you're involved in other organisations. Has the cancer amplified your willingness to be purposeful, or is it, you know, is it, is this for your enjoyment? Yeah, no, hell yeah. Um, hell yeah. The answer is, I mean, it, it, there's a wonderful book that I read just as I kind of came through all of this, and that when I, I the, almost a friend gave it to me, you know, when I was declared that I, the cancer had gone, and I was now in complete remission and someone gave me this amazing book called man's search for meaning and i'm so glad he did and the book is you know powerful but also very traumatic to read it's about a, a person going through the concentration camps during the war 
but through that learning about the, the difference between happiness and meaning and um and it was so the timing was just so incredible for me because you know as you say one of the temptations or things was you come out of a, a life-changing experience and you just suddenly go into this hedonistic kind of crazy lifestyle of you know living every day in, a, in, a, in an amazing way crazy way but it, but really ultimately that doesn't it's not very fulfilling um you know chasing happiness for its own sake is actually pretty hollow and i've done a lot of reading and and research and stuff about this now and you know it's well understood that um humans need something much more than just happiness they need the sense of purpose and meaning and so for me how that plays out is you know putting first of all feeling an obligation or a um a need or a want to help other people. You know, that's a big part of my life. I spend quite a lot of time with other cancer patients, um, talking to them or meeting them or helping them navigate the health system or finding clinical trials and that sort of stuff. Um, I do a lot of work with charities and, and that's and then as well, just kind of raising money for them and doing whatever I can do to help out because they helped me so much. But also then the organizations that I love working with are ones that are changing the world for the better. You know, so um, I work for this incredible company, New Zealand Story, that we talked about. So that's telling the story of the of the New Zealand to the world, with the purpose of you know really growing this country. And then I and yeah, the other boards and things I'm on, and there are quite a few. Yes, you can look through my CV. That the common factor between them is that they are all on a mission to make a change in a positive way. You know, to to people's lives, to businesses, to society. And it's such a privilege to be able to you know put my skills that I learnt over the thirty or forty years it's been I've been in in the in, in the industries and in the sectors that I've been in, put them to work in a really positive way. So, yeah, if anything, um, I probably work harder than I ever have, <laughs> as my wife will keep reminding me, but with much more purpose and meaning, you know, much more impact, you know, not just for me, but for others, I hope. Yeah, so, because you're, you know, you're trying to balance bringing up three boys, being a husband, and, you know, and just enjoying some life. Yeah. How do you pull it all together? How do you make it happen? Are you, like, really good at, kind of segmenting time and just really disciplined or like what's your secret sauce yeah i think i am i i definitely i'm very hyper scheduled um i've got a great you know scheduling system in my in an ea that helps me out massively and um and i'm very good at juggling the, i think i'm very good anyway that's my ask my family but i'm very good at juggling i think between the priorities that crop up in my life and um uh, and I, I do take on things that probably often take on too much, frankly, because I'm, I'm too optimistic at times. I know it sounds weird. I talk about the power of optimism and at the same time, every now and then I go, Oh my God, I've, you know, I've taken on quite a lot here. So I've got to get better at sometimes at focus, but on the whole, it works really, really well. You know, like I feel like I want to have a big impact in whatever years I have left and the ability to help others is a privilege. I know it sounds cliche. I don't want to sound self-serving, but when you realize that purpose, that meaning is the, is the most fulfilling thing, you know, I go to bed sometimes exhausted and sometimes not always happy because you're dealing with some quite difficult things, you know, working with other cancer patients or, you know, trying to raise money and it's really hard or whatever. But with that sense of purpose and completion, and that is, you know, that is one of the things that, you know, most humans crave. So, uh, I'm lucky to have found that purpose. I wish that it didn't take a life-threatening illness <laughs> and, a, uh, and a life-changing events to get to that reason and purpose in life. But it, but when you find it, you know, you, it certainly is a satisfying uh, click that happens. Yeah. And being a parent, like biggest test thing you love doing. What sort of what sort of dad are you? Oh, you should ask the boys that. I've got three teenage, well, not teenage now, three boys, three young men actually, twenty four, twenty one, and. 
16, and they are incredible young men. And if anything, the adversity that we went through as a family when I was sick for a couple of years, it, it probably brought us even closer together. I mean, I'm, so I was lucky to have these beautiful role models of parents and siblings who are just an incredible family. We're still very close. And so that's translated through to my my own you know, family, and the, we are very close as a family. Um, they, yeah, I hope that what they're learning is the power of, you know, um, diversification and exploring exploring their skills and having an impact with them for others and all these things. But you don't sit down and necessarily teach them that. You, you hopefully model it through the work, you know, the examples that you set. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm lucky. And But the biggest factor in my life has to be my wife, Catherine. She's just incredible. We are such a partnership. We met at the age of 20. Uh, so what's that? Thirty-two years ago, and we've just been best friends ever since. So you know, we um, that she's just an incredible part of supporting me when I was sick, and and you know, you know, supporting uh, me as I had my career and doing the things that we have done as a family. So yeah, yeah, I think that's that's the biggest secret of all. There's an interesting statistic: people who are married or have a long-term partner have a 20% cha- better chance of going through a significant life event like cancer. Gosh. And it's because they get, you know, we get that real um, support network. And that, that's a kind of validated fact. Look it up. Google it. I will do. <laughs> yeah. And looking forward, you know, you're optimistic. I love what you're saying about young people should just enjoy the diversification of life and just embrace all of that. And I think, you know, not not being an advice yeah. giver as a parent myself, but, you know, trying to lead by example, I guess, could you say? But, you know, that, and, and as you look towards the future for yourself, for Aotearoa and our role, what excites you most? Is it, is there, you know, like, is it enterprise? Is it, is it um, stuff around sustainability? Is there anything that's really getting you excited at the moment about the future for um, this country? Yeah, it's all of those things. I mean, I I am optimistic as a person, and, and my job is almost to be optimistic for the country, if you like. So, you know, we talk about the growing the brand of New Zealand and, and the value that that can have in the world. But I'm genuine about it. Like, I really am optimistic. And I know there's a lot of, you know, negative press out there at the moment. There's, you know, people are looking at the inflation figures and the and headwinds the wars in Europe, you know, the, the dollar being down. Or, you know, at any given moment, there's, there's many, many reasons that, and you could focus on the negative things. The reality, though, is, you know, this is, the world has almost never been a better place to be. I mean, objectively, you know, yes, we, through the media and other things, we see now more the, um, the challenges of the world, but that doesn't mean there are more of them. In fact, they're, they're, they're sort of reducing mostly. The challenges we genuinely face, things like climate change and man's impact on the planet and biodiversity loss and those sorts of things, those are where our longer-term challenges lie. Uh, and New Zealand's a country that has the ability to to really make a difference. Yes, we are, you know, we're, we're at the bottom of the world and we're not the biggest country in the world, but actually our thinking and our way of being and our values as a country, who we are and what we stand for, uh, particularly coming from our Māori culture, is a very valuable part of, you know, the solution for the future, um, thinking about intergenerational um, guardianship of the planet that we're on, thinking of ourselves as part of nature, not separate from nature, so not an extractive mentality of you know, taking, we're actually part of an ecosystem. When you start to reframe things, um, and then you add technology to that, and that's really where we, um, New Zealand, again, has a big advantage. We're, we're a very technologically adept nation. We've got a history of innovation in agri-tech, for example, 
you add all that together, we're, this is a country that not only can we start to fix the problems that we've got ourselves and do it in a way that's very equitable and bringing others on the journey, but actually that technology, that those sort of innovations can be used globally. And, um, you know, I'm excited about that. You know, we're seeing some really interesting stuff happen in the areas of sustainability and, and understanding how we bring this, this worldview, you know, to play and help others. Yeah. And, and you and I both kind of grew up in the eighties and the nineties and, and where, you know, enterprise was, was all about profit and maximizing profit. And, yeah. you know, these, a lot of the narrative we grew up with was around individualism. Um, and I think there is a shift. Of, yeah. There's a shift, right? There's a shift happening towards more of a collective focus. Just to close up before we end, like, I'm thinking, you know, COVID hits, lockdowns, a lot of us were rendered useless, but, David Downs decided to um, start coding this um, this kind of bit of software for good. Like, tell, tell us about um, tell us about that. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, we'd already had a few jobs. You decided. I, think to- I was pretty busy. I mean, there's, I mean, there's a great saying my mother uses, which is always give a job to a busy person. Yeah, I think with um, you, that's very apt because they'll get it done. You know. So I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I always think about that quite regularly um, when I take things on and go. Right, I'm just going to get it done. I haven't got time to muck around. Um, but yeah, I'm thinking you're referring to SOS. Thing that we, I did yeah. with some others during, yeah, SOS business, which was an amazing, um, charity, basically. We set up a charity. Um, it was, it was kind of a crazy idea I had after talking to the cafe owner down the road who, who I was worried was going to go out of business, you know, when the COVID lockdown started happening. And the press at the time was full of negative stories of, you know, the world is ending and 50% unemployment and blah, blah, blah. And the thing is, you can spend your, your your precious brain cells thinking about stuff like that, or you can do something positive. And that's why I decided to do. So I, I, I set up this website that helped hospitality businesses like cafes and restaurants and bars and stuff to sell vouchers, which I know sound very transactional and trivial, but boy, it was really a, an, um, a shift for them because many of these businesses had no idea how to use technology, how to set up websites, all that kind of jazz. And I was going, well, I do. I know how to do that. Not particularly well, and I'm a bit rusty, but I could give it a crack. And um, and I'm really glad I did. You know, we helped um, two and a half thousand New Zealand businesses to kind of trade through that period of the the multiple lockdowns that we had across the country. The system has now done about four million dollars worth of revenue. All of that, as I say, is it's charitable. So basically, that goes straight to the businesses. That was the model. And then the, uh, beautifully, many many people who bought those vouchers for coffees or whatever in the future never used them. And they said, look, we just wanted the money to go to these businesses. We just we just liked them. It was just a privilege to be able to do it. It wasn't me alone. There were plenty of people helping. And it just goes to that point of if you can see an opportunity in anything. And I know it sounds very cliche and some people will roll their eyes, but the reality is you, you get to choose, you know. Humans have got this incredible ability to reframe our reality. And you can say to yourself right now, oh, we're just coming out of a pandemic and there's war in Europe and oh my God, inflation and da da da. Or you can say, actually, how can we make the best of this time we're currently in? What are the things that we can do to help others? What energy have I got that I can apply to fixing things? And as soon as you do that, your mind shifts, you know, and you're coming at it with a growth mindset and opportunity mindset. It's very powerful. David Downs, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. Thanks for having me. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.